Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that um, we know, Lord, as your Word has been read and has been sung, uh, you have been speaking to us, and we pray you continue to do that now as we come to consider this passage together. Uh, may your Spirit who gave us this Word uh, empower me to preach it rightly and faithfully in his strength, uh, and may your Spirit work in each one of our hearts uh, may he point us to Christ. Uh, may he enable us to see uh, something of your glory. Um, may he um, uh, enable us to respond uh, in, a, in a fitting way. So we pray that you work among us now, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Louis Fourteenth was the king of France for 72 years. He was the longest uh, king to reign in European history. And he reigned from 1643 to 1715, and he was a remarkable king. In fact, so much did he accomplish in his reign that he was called Louis the Great. But at his funeral at Notre Dame Cathedral, in the midst of all the regal splendor, the preacher began his sermon with these words, Only God is great. Only God is great. In our passage today, we meet another king, another great king, and we see him learn that same lesson, and we will see the significance of that for our lives today. But before we get to our passage, let me remind you of what we've already seen uh, in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, God gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and Judah became part of the great Babylonian empire. The cream of Jerusalem society uh, was taken to Babylon, and among them were Daniel and his friends Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And while they served the king of Babylon and the advance in his administration, their ultimate loyalty was to God, the God of Israel. In chapter 2, God, through Daniel, revealed to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, uh, and not only the dream, but also the interpretation. Uh, and it showed that Babylon and the empires that would come after it will ultimately be destroyed, but that God's kingdom would endure forever. And the big thing that Nebuchadnezzar learned from there was that God is the one who reveals mysteries. God speaks. And in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue, and he commanded everyone to bow down to this statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused because they knew they could only worship God. And Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the fiery furnace, but God rescued them from it, and Nebuchadnezzar learned that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was able to deliver his servants who trusted in him. God saves. God speaks. God saves. And now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn another lesson. His third lesson, God rules. The passage begins in verses 1 to 3 with a message from King Nebuchadnezzar to the people all over the world, telling them that he has come to realize that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation, that God truly is the king. And the rest of the chapter tells them how this came about. 
Well, he begins in verse 4 by painting a picture of himself at ease. He's, he's relaxing at home. He's, he's prospering in his palace. He's, he's doing well. But his tranquility is broken by an alarming dream. In verse 5, he is very afraid. There's something about this dream that Nebuchadnezzar knows is different from the usual kind of dreams. Maybe it reminds him about something of the dream in chapter 2. Uh, and so in verse 6, he calls for all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before him, to come to interpret the dream. But, uh, in fact, unlike in chapter 2, he even tells them the dream. He tells, okay, now I tell you, you tell me the interpretation. And even then they can't. But then at last, in verse 8, Daniel came before him. Now, we don't know why Nebuchadnezzar doesn't call him first. After all, he was the one who was successful in chapter 2. Uh, maybe he's away, or uh, maybe Nebuchadnezzar still wants to try back the old ways. Uh, maybe, he tries to, maybe he wants to avoid bringing Daniel into the picture because even though he's acknowledged Daniel's God twice now, he's never come out of any of those encounters looking terribly good, has he? And even though he's acknowledged Daniel's God in the last two chapters, actually he's still thinking in a pagan way. He's realized God can reveal mysteries. He's realized God saves his people, but it's obvious he hasn't taken Yahweh to be his God. Because you see in verse 8, he's still talking about Belteshazzar being named after his own God. And then he's talking about a multiplicity of gods. Uh, back in chapter 2, he had said to Daniel, your God is God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords. But he hasn't made Daniel's God his God. His insight has not solidified. And he's fallen back in his thinking. And sometimes it's like that, isn't it? Right, when we share the gospel with people, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Um, and even in our own experience, we see that as well. We, we, we learn spiritual lessons one year, and then well, maybe we slip back to some extent the next year, even though we're still progressing forward overall. And it was like that with Jesus and his disciples, wasn't it? I mean, there were times they realized something of who he was, and then they lose it, and they go back to their worldly thinking, and then they realize again, and, uh, until finally the penny drops in a big kind of way. So, so don't be discouraged when these things happen. This happens. If people are taking two steps forward, one step back, then, well, at least that effect, taking two steps forward, one step forward, lah. Persevere with them. God, God's, God's persevering with Nebuchadnezzar here. So Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream. And in that dream, in verse 10, he sees a, a, a great tree. And this tree, it says, it grew in verse 11 and became strong. And its top reached to heaven. It's visible to the end of the earth. This is a huge, huge, huge tree. It's got beautiful leaves. It's got abundant fruit. It becomes the, the habitat of animals and birds and a source of nourishment for the whole world. But then something happens. In verse 13, a, a watcher, a holy one, presumably some kind of angelic being, comes down from heaven and he commands, in verse 14, that the tree be chopped down. Whole tree is to be chopped down, but in verse 15, is to be left just a stump at the bottom. Just a bit of the tree left in the earth. So that, well, maybe one day that tree can grow back. But not yet, because even that stump, if you look in verse 15, is bound with a band of iron and bronze. It's chained down in the grass so it can't grow up. And then the command about the stump kind of seems to morph into commands about a man. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that can work in a dream. It doesn't tend to work in real life, but in a dream, you kind of think just, it just morphs. And, and well, here it works because actually the tree represents a man. 
And we're moving now from symbol to reality. And this man in verse 15 to 16 will, will, will have the mind of an animal. And he will live wildly. He will live with the beasts of the, uh, with the field and the, in the grass of the earth for, for seven periods of time. And the reason for this is decreed by the holy ones. And it's there in verse 17. That the, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Have a look at it with me. This, this is the most important verse in the whole passage. Last half, last half of verse 17. That the, mo that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, Nebuchadnezzar tells the dream to Daniel. He asked Daniel to interpret the dream. Uh, Daniel's worried about doing it, uh, but the king gently reassures him. He says, don't let the dream or interpretation alarm you because he, he wants to know even if it's bad news. And so Daniel's telling him, he goes as diplomatically as possible. He says, you know, may this dream be not for you, like may it be for your enemies, for those who hate you. I, I wish it was that because I don't wish bad for you. And he explains that this big, big tree that Nebuchadnezzar saw well, that, that's Nebuchadnezzar himself. His greatness, verse 22, has, has, has grown and reaches to heaven and his dominion to the ends of the earth. But remember how the tree was to be chopped down and, and bound with bands of iron and bronze and chained in the grass for seven periods of time? Well, before Daniel explains what that means, again, he is careful to remind the, 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 uh, the king that it's his dream, not, not Daniel's wish, it's his dream. And then he tells what it is. Verse 24. It is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The king will lose his mind until he knows that God is God and he is not. But after that, verse 26, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. When, de when, the, when the king realizes that God is God, his kingdom will be restored. So what is Daniel going to advise the king? Well, he knows it's going to happen. The watchers have made the decree. And all he can do is suggest that the king repent of his sins and act rightly and start showing mercy to the oppressed and, and hope for a delay in the inevitable. Well, we don't know what Nebuchadnezzar does with this, but we are told in, in verse 29 that 12 months later, the dream comes true. There's Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, and as he looks out, Babylon is indeed amazing. Nebuchadnezzar had completed a great building program. Uh, this may have well included the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as he looks around at, at all the things that he has constructed, he says in verse 30, Is this not great Babylon, 
which I have built by my mighty power as my royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And the Bible says these words are still in the king's mouth when a voice comes from heaven. Verse 31. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Well, right away, the word is fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He loses his mind. He, he acts like an animal. He's driven outdoors. He's completely unkept. Uh, in psychiatric terms, he shows symptoms of lycanthropy. A, a rare psychotic syndrome can be caused by a number of conditions. And he's like that for seven whole periods of time. But eventually, eventually, after these seven periods of time, just as the word had declared, this time of psychosis comes to a close. Nebuchadnezzar finally admits that God is God and he is not. He finally comes to terms with the fact that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Let's listen to Nebuchadnezzar's voice as he recounts this. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar finally knows that God is king. He is the true king over everything, even Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he's the only one answerable to no one but himself. He and he alone is God. Now when you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar could have easily have lost the kingdom permanently in the time he was insane. It would be very easy for someone else to come and take over. But when Nebuchadnezzar finally admits that God is God and he is not, God in his mercy actually restores him. After he became the lowliest of men, God raised him up once again to become the greatest. In verse 36, it said that the glory of his kingdom, his majesty and splendor returned to him. And in fact, not only did God restore him, he made him even greater than before. And so in conclusion, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 37, Now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God who rules deserves all praise and honor because he is right. He is just. 
He humbles the proud. That is the big lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. And he had to learn his lesson the hard way. And friends, we have to learn this lesson as well, don't we? Over and over again. Uh, the first time we have to learn this lesson is when we, when we first come to Christ. Uh, you see, human sinfulness means that, that by nature we want to be the ruler of our own life. Uh, we may be happy to give lip service to our God or gods like Nebuchadnezzar. We'll be happy to do our religious duty. But we don't really want him to be controlling everything about us. We don't want him to be able to do what he wants with us, answering to no one but himself. We, we don't want to give him the blank check of obedience, say, take my life and let it be what, whatever you want it to be. Our, our human sinfulness doesn't want that to happen. And so God has to humble us. It's only when the Holy Spirit works in our hearts that we can say, Jesus is Lord. We can come to Him and submit to Him, knowing that He is God and, and we are not. And, and yes, He lets us rule our lives in a secondary way under Him, like He let Nebuchadnezzar rule the empire under Him, acknowledging His rule and subordinating our wills to Him. But we need to humble ourselves to do that. And there's another way in which we have to swallow our pride when we first come to Christ, because human pride wants to say that we can achieve that, that, we can, that we can get to heaven by our own merits, that we can be good enough for God, and of course none of us are Allah. Then God has to humble us. He has to help us to realize that there's nothing that we can do to earn our own salvation, that based on our performance, all that, all that we deserve is His eternal punishment. And that can be a painful lesson to learn. But when we reach that point of despair, when we realize that we are so sinful that we cannot save ourselves, well, then the gospel is good news indeed because we have a Savior who died for our sins in our place and we can be saved by Him and only by Him. And so we look to Him, we rely on Him and God in His mercy saves us through Him. God is able to humble those who are proud. And God, by His Spirit, works to humble our proud hearts to enable us to receive that gift of salvation. Has God done that work in your life? Have you humbled yourself to receive Jesus as your King? Not your constitutional monarch who always acts to the advice of the Prime Minister, who happens to be you, but the absolute ruler, the one to whom you owe your complete allegiance. Have you humbled yourself to receive that gift of salvation with empty hands, saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling? Oh, if not, then, then lift up your eyes to heaven today and like Nebuchadnezzar, acknowledge that God is God and you are not and call upon Him in His mercy to save you by His grace alone and not by your achievements. But this lesson is not just for the beginning of our Christian lives. We need to keep on learning this lesson over and over and over again 
We need to learn it in ministry. Sometimes God in His mercy blesses our ministry. Sometimes He chooses not to give us the fruit that we pray for and work so hard for, and then we need encouragement to encourage each other to keep on pressing on and being faithful. But sometimes He does bless our ministry. And when God blesses our ministry, we may be tempted to look and say, oh, look what I've done. Look at the impact I've had for the gospel. Look at the fruit of my labor, the work of my hands. Look at the lives that have been changed and the people that have been helped. We may not even get to the point of speaking about that to others. But if we think in that way, even in our own head, we rob God of the glory. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar when he boasted in his achievements. And remember, he was boasting to no one but himself. Friends, guard your thoughts. If God chooses to use you for a season, then rejoice and be thankful. But remember, God is great, we are not. What you see is actually what He has accomplished through you by His grace. Do not let it go to your head, even in your own head. Because God will bring you down. He will not share His glory with another. But friends, this is not limited to ministry. When Nebuchadnezzar built his city, he wasn't doing ministry. And even then, he was not to take pride in it. For his position on the throne was given by God. His empire was given by God. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. And at this point, he had chosen to give it to Nebuchadnezzar. No doubt Nebuchadnezzar was very intelligent and strategic and worked very hard, but in the end, everything he had was given by God. And he had to learn to glorify God for everything. And friends, that's the same for us, isn't it? Have you done well in your studies? Give thanks to God. He gave you the intelligence, the opportunities, the resources, the energy, the breath. Uh, is your business or your profession taking off? Give thanks to God. Do you have a job? Well, give thanks to God. Do you have children or grandchildren who are growing? Well, give thanks to God. Whatever you do, don't get into the mindset that surveys your achievements and congratulates yourself without reference to God. There is nothing wrong with being pleased with progress and achievement. There is nothing wrong with being pleased when we are congratulated on something. With nothing wrong with being encouraged by good results in any area of life. But in your heart, and where you can in your speech, turn that into thankfulness to God, and not boasting in your own triumphs. God humbles those who walk in pride. Another way in which we learn that God is God and we are not is when we come to the painful realization, like Nebuchadnezzar, that we don't control the course of our own lives. It's easy, isn't it, to live under the illusion that, that we're in control of our lives, but actually we're not. Remember what we heard from the Holy Spirit in James chapter 4 in our uh, epistle reading? How can you, people who say, oh, you know, today, tomorrow, we're going to go in such and such a place, we'll spend a year there, we'll trade, we'll make a profit, and he says, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. 
your, your, your mist that appears for a time and, and disappears. Instead, what you should say is, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this or that. Otherwise, that is arrogant boasting. You see, friends, at any point, the course of our lives can change just like that. Through sudden illness, it can be a terrible, unexpected diagnosis, or through accident on the road or in the home, or through office politics where people conspire against us and, and cause us to lose our employment, through changes in the world markets that lead to a downturn in our investment income, or a financial crisis in our employer which triggers retrenchment. So many things outside our control. We, we can't even say for certain that we will be here tomorrow. And friends, it can be scary to have our illusion of control shattered, can't it? Except when we realize that God is in control. The Most High reigns. And the God who is in control loves us. He loves us so much that He gave His Son to die for us. He is good. He will never misuse His control. And He is wise, so perfectly wise that we often cannot understand His ways. So you know what? If God loves me, and He is good, and He is perfectly wise, then actually, it is better that He is in control and I am not. I can actually learn to be thankful that He is God and I am not. Because unlike me, He deserves to be. This is a hard lesson for Nebuchadnezzar to learn. But actually, in this passage, we see God's kindness to Nebuchadnezzar in teaching him this lesson. You see, God could have left Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and then punished him at the end. That would be right. But instead, God humbled him and taught him who he really was, and after that, exalted him again. And though it was a difficult lesson to learn, it was a lesson worth learning. And brothers and sisters, how much more is that true for us? Hebrews 12 tells us not to despise the Lord's discipline. Sometimes, in order for us to learn that God is God and we are not, He will have to take us through tough times. I'm not saying every time we go through tough times, God has this kind of discipline. God might take us through tough times for all kinds of reasons. But there are times that we, meet, we may need to be disciplined like Nebuchadnezzar to learn the lessons of humility before God. And it may be painful. But since this is done by a father who loves us, we know it will be good for us in the end. Hebrews 12 says that it yields the perfect fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But the big point we see in this passage isn't about ourselves. It is about God and His kingdom. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the king who conquered God's people. 
But actually, we see that he only reigned on earth at the pleasure of the God of heaven. God rules the kingdom of man and gives it to whom he will. And so for God's people, that's a great encouragement, isn't it? Yes, there are terrible rulers in the world, rulers who are enemies of God's people, who will oppress them, who will persecute them, but God is still on the throne. And none of those evil rulers can, can stay in power for one second longer than God decrees it. God rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom He will. And that is comfort for God's people. For we know now that even when things are bad, God is in control, and He's even got a purpose for these wicked rulers. God will bring good out of evil so that in the end, all things will work for the good of those who love Him. And that good is that we become more like Jesus in our character. And in the end, He will bring those rulers to judgment. And they will have to account for what they've done. God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And that applies to kings and empires, but it also applies to bosses in the office, to teachers and lecturers in the classroom, to government officers and other authorities. It even applies in church-based organizations. If you are suffering under a wicked ruler or an unfair boss, do not despair. God rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom He will. Trust Him and do the right thing like Daniel's friends from last week. And He will deal with the authorities in the end. Finally, let me remind us of the ultimate application of this message, of this passage, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar, isn't he? Nebuchadnezzar was proud, Jesus was humble. Philippians 2 tells us that even though he is God, Jesus humbled himself to become a man, and not only a man, but the lowliest of men. A man hung naked on a cross under the curse of God. But remember that key verse, Daniel 4.17? Listen to it again, the second half of that verse. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And that's what God did. Philippians 2 continues, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus because He made Himself nothing, because He went to the lowliest place. God has highly exalted Him and restored upon Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that He is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Nebuchadnezzar was proud, Jesus was humble. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, God exalted Jesus. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and ultimately he has given it to his son. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. You rule the kingdom of men and give it to whom you will. We admit, Father, that we are so prideful and puffed up that we often forget this. And we live under the illusion that we are in control. And please help us to realize that you are in control, not us. And help us to learn to rejoice in that. Please help us always to be thankful to you and to give you the glory for your work in us and through us. May we never be prideful and rob you of the glory you deserve, even in our own minds. And Father, if there are people here who have not yet humbled themselves to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord, please have mercy on them and enable them by your Spirit to do so. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.